Hi, everybody. I'm David Bach, author of the brand new book, The Latte Factor. If you haven't got a copy yet, jump over to my website at davidbach.com or thelattefactor.com. You'll see a bunch of good bonuses there for you when you buy the book off our website. And now, without further ado, super excited to welcome you again to the Latte Factor podcast. You ever go to the store and you buy something, and let's just say it's $7, and you get home and you look at the box and you say to yourself, this was a ripoff. This doesn't cost $7 to make. Why did I pay so much for it? Well, you paid so much for it because there's what's called a brand tax. You're actually paying for all the money that was spent to get that brand out into the world and onto the shelves. Well, what if there was a better way? What if you could get the same product for a lower price? What if that same product was healthier for you? What if it tasted better? What if you could just get a better deal on the same exact thing? Well, now you can with hundreds of products. And the way you can get them is with a company that I love. It's called Brandless. Brandless.com. I like this company so much that when it launched, I invested in it. And then I became a brand ambassador for them. And they're sponsoring the Latte Factor podcast. So I want you to go check out their website, Brandless.com. Now, when you go to Brandless.com right now, my listeners, they've got a special deal for you. When you spend over $48, shipping is free. So go to Brandless.com forward slash the Latte Factor. And you can see my favorite products. And again, receive free shipping on orders of $48 or more. That's brandless.com forward slash the latte factor. Please go check them out. Hey, everybody, I'm David Buck. Welcome back to the Latte Factor podcast. So excited to be here with you. I'm here with my buddy Grant Sabatier, the author of a brand new book, Financial Freedom. I want you to go check that out, financialfreedombook.com. Grant, man, it's so good to be here with you. It's great to be here, man. This is a lot of fun. This is a lot of fun. We're, we're here right now talking about the Latte Factor book that is coming out May 7th. Depending on when you listen to this, you can go pre-order it or you will be able to buy it if you're listening to this after May 7th. Um, this is my 13th book. It is a parable. It's a short story. It's designed to change your life and show you that you are richer than you think, that you are stronger than you know, and that your dreams are closer than you realize. And so I designed, I decided to do this podcast, and Grant was kind enough to co-host this with me to just kind of talk about things that are related to the book, but also just life lessons I've learned and and try to be a service to you. So with that, what I did, if you're a part of my community on Facebook, is I posted on Facebook, um, ask me anything. And so we got a ton of great questions, and let's go through them, Grant. It'll be fun. Yeah, let's dive in. I mean, one of the things I want to say, I've known David for a little while now, and he has so much wisdom beyond, you know, his book, Automatic Millionaire, changed my life when I read it at 24. All of his books are amazing, but he as a person has so much more wisdom beyond even money and life, and that's been the most fun thing about getting to know him and becoming friends. And so I'm excited about these questions, man, because I know they're going to go in a number of directions. Um, first one from Adam. Are you going to write a book specifically for young adults? My kids are 19 to 25. I feel like one for this demographic with your practical financial views and input would be great. You'd at least sell three to me. Uh, well, Adam, good, because I just wrote the book for you. Um, it's The Latte Factor. That's literally, this is, a, there's, there's two books. The Automatic Millionaire, which, which Grant, you read, um, helped you become a millionaire by 30. And that's a great book for young people. Um, and then I wrote The Latte Factor. That's, I wrote this book specifically to reach people 
in college and after college, um, young people like your kids. And it's, I, I'm going to be very honest here. It's a, it's a, <laughs> I'm a 15-year-old, so my I have, every book I've done since he's been alive, I sign it and it goes next to his bed. But he hasn't read any of them. So the latte factor, he's like, Dad, I'm going to read that book. And because it's a little story, right? So I literally, the, he just got a copy of The Galley. And the other day I'm, I'm walking, it's so weird, but I'm walking down the street in New York. And all of a sudden, the next thing I know, I look up and I'm like, wait a minute, that's my son. He's walking in front of me with his backpack on. And I'm putting my arm around him. He's got his earphones on. And I kind of scared him. And I go, Jack, what's going on, dude? And he's like, Dad. I just read the first four chapters of The Latte Factor. And he starts quoting it back to me. What? And I go, oh, my God, finally. So I'm like, <laughs> so this is the book that you can give to your to your 19 to 25-year-old and really anybody under the age of 50. Um, and, I uh, look, I think a lot of baby boomers will read this book, too. But go get your kids The Latte Factor. Uh, this book will really change their life. And um, it'll reach them in a way I think a normal financial book wouldn't. That's why I wrote The Latte Factor. I wanted to reach people who wouldn't normally read a financial book. Yeah, and I could see it in a couple of years being in hopefully every school in the country because someone in middle school even would get a ton of value from it. Um, Jen Sweeney asked, what would you say? This is a hot topic. I'm prefacing this. What would you say is the amount of money that one should have saved up before they retire. I feel like we could do a whole episode on this. We could do a whole episode on this. And the answer is it's totally like, first of all, it depends, right? Completely depends on how much money you spend. Absolutely. And where you live and what's your lifestyle and what do you want? I mean, what was interesting to me, if I go back to my first nine years at Morgan Stanley as a financial advisor, I had a lot of clients come in my office and retire with a quarter of a million dollars. And you go, that doesn't sound like a lot of money. And, but they had a pension plan and their home was paid off and their overhead was low. So it's po- back then it was possible to retire with a quarter million dollars if you have a pension plan in your health care. So what's a pension for people who don't oh, know? So that's where you have a job and then once you're done with your job, they give you a check for the rest of your life. Like if you're a government worker and the government doesn't go bankrupt, then you, get a pe- you have a pension plan, right? So policemen and firemen and teachers, like lots and lots of people with pension plans. Now it's fewer and fewer far between, but... Um, you know, so that's an example. You don't need a whole lot of money if you've got no overhead in a pension plan. If you've been in the military. Um, so it, it depends on what you need when you retire is an income stream, right? So the, what, here's the key to an income. Here's the key to cash. Here's the key to money. There's income and outgo, right? Money either comes in or money goes out. When you retire, if you don't have money coming in, you have a problem. You don't notice money not coming in until you don't. It's like oxygen. So again, I... This is a hard one to answer specifically, but it really depends on your lifestyle. I know people who have a couple million dollars and can't retire because their expenses are high. Now, there was another guru out there who recently told people you need $5 million to retire. That's nonsense. Okay, the average American, first of all, I don't know, you know, God bless you. You got off your private island, off your private jet, and you came back to grace us with the idea that everybody in America needs to work (laughs) until they're 70 and have $5 million. Uh, That's nonsense. I mean... Again, I, I'm a co-founder of a registered investment advisory firm that has $6 billion on the platform. We have financial advisors all over the country. Most of our clients are retirees, and most of them did not retire with even a million dollars, right? Like the mass affluent person in America, there's 30 million of them, have somewhere between a quarter of a million and $2 million. I didn't even know that. That's, that's the bread and butter mass affluent American. So... 
you have a million dollars in savings. You are in such a small percentage of this country. There's somewhere between five to $10 million, depending on whose numbers you look at, that are millionaires in this country. And that's a lot of millionaires. But do you need a million dollars to retire? It just depends. It depends on where you live and what you want. Yeah. And you're in control of that. So the less money you spend, the less money you need to live on, the less money you need to have saved. And you're the one that ultimately can determine that. Um, Kathy asked, what are three things you wish you would have done differently regarding money and finances? Hmm. Seems like you've made a lot of the right decisions. What are three things that you might have done differently? Invest in real estate more, maybe? I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. You know, so I'm going to answer, I'm going to answer this question. Um, hindsight's like ridiculous, right? But I'm going to answer this. I'll tell you some things I wish I had done differently that hurt me. Um, I bought Amazon.com early. So, but you sold it? Yeah. Uh. So I bought Amazon early. <laughs> and it's not even that I bought a lot of it, but it doesn't really matter. Right? I've been an author for 20 years. And I bought Amazon before 2001. Oh. So that Amazon stock today, if I had just left it alone, just those original shares would probably be worth over a million dollars. But Grant, if I... I've been on Amazon's website every single day for 20 years, right? I'm an author. We're obsessed. We go and we look at how we're doing on Amazon. And if I had just taken 10% of my royalties over my career and just bought Amazon stock, it's insane how much money I would have had. So I really regret that. I do own Amazon now, and I'm going to keep it forever. Um, but I regret that. There, are, I could go on a long list of stocks that I regret that I sold. I think that the biggest thing is that pretty much everything I ever sold is worth significantly more money today. It's a really interesting lesson, right? Like everything, every piece of real estate I ever sold is worth more today. Uh, now they were sold because in many cases, like I sold my home in San Francisco to buy a home in New York. Um, but things have always gone higher. And I think along those lines, you well, know- Why'd you sell your home in New York? Uh, so my cars? home in New York I'm selling because I am getting ready to leave New York and we own another, we own another property. So we're going to keep a small apartment in New York that I will use as my place to visit here, but we're gonna get ready to go to Florence, Italy. And then the plan is to move to probably Park City because I'm gonna spend a bunch of time skiing. He skis a lot. I ski a lot. I, I attest to that. And um, yeah, and I'm ready for a new lifestyle. We will have been here 20 years. My wife's been here 30 years and, and we'll always keep an apartment in Manhattan. But so I, again, I'm, I'm, I guess I, I don't know if I have three things. Um, What's the? I'll I'll throw a third one in yeah, there yeah. and ask you about it. You mentioned how you know when you were working with Morgan Stanley and you were making good money and you were doing well and you could have kept kind of doing that forever, but there was some itch in you. I think maybe your late twenties and mm -hmm. both because of your grandmother, but also because you wanted to do something different and make a difference. But um, it seemed like everything in your life was maybe telling you not to take the risk and write a book and become an author, uh, but you you made that decision. So that's not something you would have done differently. But can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it's an important lesson. Oh, my. Yeah, completely. And it'll take us off on a tangent, but let's do that for a second. So in the back of the book, of the Latte Factor, there's a Q&A, which will be a part of one of these podcasts. And there's the story about my grandmother. Um, my grandmother, who's my money mentor and my, you know, really like the person I turned to for everything who I would talk to about what's going on in my life. Um, she was super healthy. She drank green juice every day and she hiked five miles a day. She outlived my grandfather by like, I think it was 15 years. At 86, it turned out 
Um, she was dating three men three nights a week, and we didn't know about this until her funeral. Uh, but at 86, my grandmother had a stroke, and we had to bring her back to the Bay Area um, to put her in a nursing care facility near our near our home. And the last time I was with her was it was I asked my grandmother a question, which is, "Do you have any regrets in life?" And my grandmother said no. She said, I've had a great life. And she said, your father, you know, I had, I had your father and he's an amazing son. And he's done so well. And I'm close to you and your sister. And, you know, she went through the things of why her life was so great. And then the next day I came back to visit her in the morning. And I said, Grandma, how'd you sleep? And she's like, terrible. I was up all night long thinking about all my regrets. And I was like, what do you mean? And so she actually went back and went through five of her biggest regrets. And she had had a stroke, so it took her a long time to go through them with me. But her mind was totally crystal clear. And she went back to her regrets all the way to being a teenager. And she said, and she shared exactly what they were. It was like it was like yesterday. And she said, the lesson's not in what my regrets are. The lesson is in why I have the regrets. And she said, the reason I have these regrets is that I, in every one of those cases, there were five of them, I came to a fork in the road where I had to make a decision, do I... Do I go where I do I take the road where the goal where I think the gold is? It's the riskier road. Or do I take the road which is the safer road? And she said in every one of those cases, I took the safer route. And so now I see her 86, I'm probably never gonna get out of this bed, and I'll never know what could have been. And I'll never forget, I looked at her and I go, but grandma, you have such a great life. And she just she I tried to make her feel better, and she put her hand on mine and she gripped me as hard as she could at the time. And she said, David, I am telling you, when you come to these forks in the road, take the risk. She said, there's going to be a little boy inside of you that's going to be saying, you know, is going to be wanting to come out and play. And then there's going to be a big boy inside of you saying, no, no, let's go the safe route. And she's like, every time I got to that fork in the road, I didn't listen to my little girl. And now it's too late. And I drove back to my office and pretty much in tears. Um. I remember like it was yesterday, I actually drove into the parking lot. We are, our offices in Arinda was in Theater Square. It's, my family's office is still there. And um, I started crying. And then I started, I've only, had a, I've only had this experience a couple times in my life where I started, basically started bawling. And I, and I looked and somebody came, drove by and knocked on my window. I was like, are you okay? And I woke me coming back up and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. And I looked in the rearview mirror and I said to myself, um, I'm going to get you out of here in three years. That's what I said to myself. I'm going to get you out of here in three years because I was at Morgan Stanley. I was working on Smart Women Finish Rich, but I felt my purpose in life was to go help more people. And instead of helping 100 rich people, I wanted to try to help millions. And so I literally looked in the rearview mirror and I looked at myself and said, okay, Grandma, in three years I'll be out of here. took four years. But I worked on my freedom plan. You worked on your freedom plan. I worked on my freedom plan. I wanted to be free by the age of 30. I think it was 31. So I would have enough wealth built up where I could leave Morgan Stanley and go for my dreams, which was to go write these books and help millions of people. And I picked up and moved from the Bay Area to to New York, where I live today, um, on a wing and a prayer to do what I do. And then I wrote The Automatic Millionaire, and that was like, that was actually my f- fifth book, because I wrote Smart Women, Smart Couples, Finished Workbook, did The Finisher's Dictionary. A lot of people think The Automatic Millionaire was my first book, but it was my fifth. Um, and moving to New York changed everything. So... Yeah, that was one of the greatest decisions in my life. That was the scariest thing I ever did was leaving Morgan Stanley, but that was the, that was the scariest decision I ever made. Whew. That's why I wanted you to share that. Just uh, it's, uh, it's almost always easier in life to go back much harder to obviously when you're 
86 and you can't go back, but you can almost always go back to probably being a financial advisor, but you weren't going to have another shot maybe at that dream. It's so. also why I'm picking up and moving to Florence, Italy. Yeah. You know, this book's coming out May 7th, and I'm going to tour all over the country and go to, go to like, I don't even know how many cities now, well, well over 10, and um, I'm going to tour through June, I'm going to come home, I'm going to pack up our house, and I'm going to move my family to Florence, Italy for a year. And my kids are going to go to school there and... You know, my son's a sophomore, and it's my last chance to take him abroad for a year and be with him. And I just thought, I have a, as a father, I have this little sliver of time left, and I don't want to regret not having done this. So, I, you know, there are a lot of people who are sort of not super happy with me because I'm picking up in the middle of a big business and getting ready to go to Florence, Italy, but... Um, you know what? I I can work for the rest of my life. So got, I, I'm gonna go take an early. Sabbat- I'm gonna take a little sabbatical and go, uh, and go live rich. And your your instincts, your intuition is, you know, you trust your intuition because it's proven right so many times. And so that's uh, that's an important piece there too. All right, let's get back to the the AMA. David Bach, Jeremy asks, should I roll? Very tactical question. Should I roll all of my retirement accounts from my past jobs, et cetera, into one? I'm kind of hesitant to put all of these eggs into one basket. Yeah, Jeremy, great question. The 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 answer is yes. You should roll them all into one retirement account, and I'm gonna give you lots of reasons why. Number one, if they're sitting a bunch of different places, you're not paying attention to them. I think the worst thing to do is leave your money in a 401k plan when you leave your job. People clean out their desks. They literally take every last thing out of their desk, and then they leave all their money behind. Um, it makes no sense to me. When you leave money in a 401k plan. You've, the control is still at the 401k provider. If they move the 401k plan from one place, Fidelity to Vanguard, your money can be moved. Um, I think you should move the money into an IRA account that you have complete control over. And if you have multiple accounts, you should just consolidate them in one IRA account. And then you can totally diversify that one IRA account. So you can have an IRA account with all of your money in it, and you can completely have your eggs in a bunch of baskets. Uh, it makes your life simpler. It's easier to manage the money. And if you're married, God forbid you die tomorrow, um, it's much easier for your spouse to take over an IRA account and have a, it's called a deceased beneficiary IRA account, but it takes one death certificate and it takes five minutes. If your money's in three or four 401k plans, it's a nightmare. Your spouse has to go back and work with all these HR people that they don't even know and then process all that paperwork and then still... Ultimately, she's going to turn around and roll it into one IRA account so you can clean up everything way before that happens. And it's different than putting all of your eggs into one investment basket. Exactly. Because you can still diversify in that one retirement account. Okay, Arwen asked, what is the least confrontational, I love this question, (laughs) (laughs) and most encouraging way to approach a spouse or partner when you feel finances are not being dealt with appropriately? So summarizing this, What's the best way to talk to your partner about money? So this is like a really big issue for so many couples. Um, fighting about money is the number one cause of divorce. And it's, you know, again, I'll go back to being a financial advisor. It's so interesting because a lot of clients, a lot of women came to my seminars and then they, they still do. And they, a lot of times when they come to my office after a divorce, I always ask the question, was, one, was money one of the top three reasons you got divorced? And like 80% of the, and 80% of the answers, it was like number one. And because and because the issues of money go back to control and lack of respect and, you know, and also regular fighting. The problem with money fights is that they can be very regular, like every time the bills show up. 
So you have to be on the same page. That's what led me to my second book, Smart Couples Finish Rich. I recommend any couple who's having issues around money go read that book and literally go through it together. Um, because the key for couples is to, like, is to, first of all, forget the money and get back to what matters most to you, which are your values. Get on the same page with what do you care most about? Here's what I care most about. Here's what you care most about. And what do we care most about? I've been able to take couples that were on the verge of divorce and by getting them to talk about their values first and then build their financial plan around that, change everything. I actually did that on an Oprah show where we literally did a makeover for a couple that was on the verge of divorce and we had them write their values on a piece of paper and just talk about it together. And I'll never forget the producer said to me, are you sure this stuff works? I'm like, I do this for a living. Like this, I, I know this <laughs> stuff works. Like we're going to have a live camera crew there. So if it doesn't work, it's going to be super awkward. Like I got it. I got it. Right. And, and ju- I mean, it worked even better than I could have hoped for because they were like basically in tears and then they came together and, um, but it works. Talking about your values works. And, and people, what if my, what if my husband's values are totally different than mine? Well, then that's a marriage problem. Right. Um, what I find is most couples have way more uh, value in common mm-hmm. than not. So start there. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, Jenny asks, my daughter is 20 and in college. We looked at her credit score for the first time yesterday. It was 628. All she has is student loans not yet due on her report right now. How does she build credit? to raise her score as a student. Do you have a couple tips for raising credit for students or anyone? Yeah, totally. And, and I hate the way I'm going to have to answer this question because this is the whole problem with our credit scoring system. So what a credit score is, it's basically the system that's put in place to figure out, are you somebody we should loan money to? And the crazy thing is based on loaning money to you, whether or not you pay it back on time, right? So a big part of your credit score is, number one, have you borrowed money? Number two, have you... Have you used that money that you've borrowed? What percentage of it have you used? Like if you borrow, if you get a credit card and the credit card's $5,000, if you max out that credit card, then your score's lower. If you have a $5,000 credit card and you have nothing on it, then your score's higher. Um, if you don't pay your bills on time, your score's lower. If you pay your bills on time, your score goes higher. The more forms of credit you have that you haven't borrowed against that you pay on time, the higher your score is. So... The reason I hate my answer is that I don't actually want young people to go borrow money. Um, and But the, in order to have a credit score, you actually have to borrow money and then pay it back and then pay it on time. So things like credit cards or cars, anywhere where you're borrowing money and paying it on time brings your credit score higher. But it sucks. It sucks because what happens is most people who are young borrow money and they don't pay it on time and they make their credit score worse. I did this. I went I went to USC for college and freshman year, got multiple credit cards, maxed them out, and by sophomore year was five thousand dollars in credit card debt. And it just turned my entire life upside down. That's a big thing that inspired me to be an entrepreneur because I figured I couldn't get an hourly job and pay it off. Um, and so I became an entrepreneur in college. But um by the time I was a senior, I'd done it all over again. I got out of debt and then got back into debt. So I would tell anybody who's in college, the longer you can keep yourself from getting credit cards, and borrowing money, the better off you are. So two more quick questions. The first, um, you know, there's so much a sort of conflicting advice around this international investing. How do you feel about international exposure and retirement plans? Some people say zero, like the Warren Buffetts of the world. Other people say upwards of 40, 50%. It is a volatile 
world out there. And I know we're going to dive into in the next episode, some of your thoughts on the economy and, you know, we'll touch on it there, but what, you know, just a quick, uh, from Larry, you know, could you address that international investing issue? Yeah. So I, 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 I totally agree with Warren Buffett. Uh, he's smarter than I am and I've followed Warren Buffett for most of my life. I actually have no right now international investments Woo! in my portfolio. None. Me neither. Man. Zero. Me neither. But here's the thing, Grant, we actually do have international exposure because <laughs> we're an American company that right. have a third or half of the revenue coming from abroad. Yep. I'm invested in Berkshire Hathaway. Yep. Half all his companies are for, they're US based companies, but they're half the income's coming from abroad. So, you know, Warren Buffett's point is you get international exposure. Anyway, yep. And I will tell you again, seeing on investment committee that oversees $6 billion on our platform, um, when our original portfolios were being built for our model portfolios, and we had an institute, we have an institutional money manager, they were super, they were skewed uh, global and they had emerging markets in them. And, and we do have global in our portfolios for our clients, but they're skewed down. Like I, I didn't want them aggressive in emerging markets because the volatility is too high. And so I would, I'm a proponent, my preference is is little international and at most it's, I would tell you 20%. Yeah. I got beat up. That was the biggest criticism of my book. People are like, you're not international, you're young. Um, The last question, most important question, I think, uh, what's the one thing you would tell either of your sons that you wish you would have known at their age? Hmm. That's such a good question. Um... Boy, okay, you know what? This is going to seem so random, but my kids will know this from the get a really good attorney. <laughs> no, no, this is funny because honestly, like when you start in business, you need to have you need to have a good attorney. You need to you need to make sure you got good attorneys because um, early on in my career, I'll give you a classic example. I I was working at Morgan Stanley. I wrote Smart Women Finish Rich. I turned around and licensed Smart Women Finish Rich my seminar program to a mutual fund company. And I didn't have experience doing deals or I wasn't, I wasn't really like an entrepreneur yet who had done a lot of these deals. And I signed a contract with that I didn't understand, even though it was reviewed by an attorney, it wasn't an IP attorney, an intellectual property attorney. And there was a clause in, the, in that contract that I've learned really how to, I've learned a lot about contracts, but there was a clause in that contract. It was a one-year deal. But at the end of one year, there was one little clause that basically gave, said, oh, this is actually not over in a year. We actually have the rights to your IP into perpetuity worldwide. And I got done with the year. I thought all the rights were turning back to me and we we're going to renegotiate. And they're like, oh, we actually own everything. And that, that took me seven years to unwind. Whoa. Uh, multiple deals before I, got, before I literally unwound the rights and got them back. And, you know, you meet so many people who have lost their stuff, especially in, an, in any business IP. You meet people who start businesses and they're kicked out of their businesses. Um, having good attorneys around you to represent you. It's never too early to get an attorney. It's never too early. I mean, it's, it literally is not to attorney. And it's funny because uh, there's a couple other friends of mine that are in the same space as we are. And uh, what we do now is, is we kick back contracts back and forth and we like – laugh about them because the con like deals are getting, I've never seen deals as bad as they are today mm-hmm. and people trying to own your IP and uh, you have to be very careful. You don't need to talk about this over drinks actually, because I don't want anybody taking advantage of you. So I will be telling my kids, man, we're going to make sure you got good representation early. I appreciate Attorneys that. are expensive, but um, they're worth their weight in gold. Well, thank you for answering all these questions. Um, 
I'm sure you'll be doing more AMAs as you get closer to the book release and the book comes out before you jet off to Florence. And so keep asking David your questions on Facebook. Subscribe to his newsletter at davidbach.com. It's a great newsletter. comes out every other Sunday. And thanks for joining us. Thanks for sharing your wisdom, David. Grant, thank you for being here, man. And everybody go back and check out Grant's website too, financialfreedombook.com. Go get his book. 